Hello again, everybody. So we are having some technical difficulties, and it is apparently this pack, and we don't have an extra one of those, Marcus. We should have a whole drawer of just these things. Um, so we'll try this, see how it goes, and then I'll switch up if I have to, okay? Um, yeah. So we're walking through the Gospel of John, which uh, was his biography, John's biography of Jesus. There are four biographies or Gospels in the Bible, and so this is specific to John. And John builds his Gospel around seven signs. He says these signs were lots of miracles, but these seven stood out to really help us understand what it meant for God to become flesh. What's it really mean for us that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus? So uh, John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John says that God, the Word, became flesh. And these signs show us what it meant for glory to be revealed. Here's what grace looks like. Here's what truth looks like. John says these are seven signs that define the glory of God. So the first sign was Jesus turning water into wine. So it turns out that part of God's glory is that he can step into any situation and transform anything. He can take what is empty and fill it with something useful. God can even transform a party gone lame into a party with 180 gallons of awesome wine. John says that that's a sign of God's glory. So, as we talk about the second of these miracles, or signs, I want to set up the social-political situation of Jesus' day, because we really can't appreciate this incredible act of grace unless we understand uh, why this was so gracious. We all love to think of a loving and gracious God, but what happens when he does something to bless mean people? What happens when that grace shows its face on someone who doesn't believe what we believe or act like we act? A loving God is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful idea. Until he rebukes you And then goes and has lunch with Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, or whoever you think is the next Antichrist. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, grace gets messy. How could God's grace be shown toward that guy or that person? Now, this was the kind of dilemma that Jesus created for people his entire ministry. So, let's go through a scenario to make sure that we can track with this second sign from John, okay? So let's pretend 
through a series of very unfortunate events. This is us today. Let's pretend that Iranian forces have forced our nation into surrender. And they come and they occupy our land. There are Iranian soldiers on every corner. They're stationed throughout this church building on Sunday morning. They're not from here. They don't speak our language. They don't believe in our God. And there are soldiers throughout the country, very visible. They're at our schools, at our parties, wherever Iran feels like they need to be to keep the peace and to keep order. They can demand for you to carry their things to the trunk of your car and then you have to drive them across town whenever they want and you have to be obedient to that. And this is just everyday life. Can you imagine how frustrating just that detail would be alone that everywhere you go, there are soldiers directing your activities, overseeing your activities. Now the emperor of all of the Iranian territory, is back in Iran. (coughs) He appointed governors, or kings, over regions within states. Now these aren't elected officials. Uh, These are men and women who sold their soul to the foreign emperor to help him keep the peace. And they're appointed king by this Iranian emperor. So there's now a king over Cleveland in northeastern Ohio. King Roethlisberger. Just the name. We'll talk about you later, Brian. And the king says, I don't care if you have churches. I'll be appointing your pastors, though. I'll decide who leads your churches. So I'm fired. And every area clergy is fired. And the king, King Roethlisberger, appoints pastors and leaders for churches. So now there's Pastor Heinz Ward. And he's telling you that now you're required to give 10%. You are required to give 10% every week. And if he suspects that you're holding out, he knows people. And you know that that 10% is just, you know, lying in his pocket. He's just a part of the evil empire. But you also have to pay, in addition to that 10%, you have to pay 20% to King Roethlisberger. He's known for lavish spending, building ornate buildings, and entertaining other kings and governors on your, with your tax money, and also with your taxes. He has his buddies, people who were fortunate enough to be friends with him before he became king. They're called royal officials. Now, who knows what they do? They're just a part of his entourage. They dress to the nines. They live in mansions. They enjoy the good life on your taxes. 
They looked a lot like Brian Laffin, who shows up, no one knows what he does. He's just around. So you have to see Pastor Heinz Ward and pay tribute to him. Pay tribute to your king and know that that goes to guys like Brian that just really spend your tax money. You work for the government, don't you, Brian? <laughs> now you also have to send another 20% out of the country to the emperor of Iran. Now doesn't that sound miserable? Soldiers everywhere, you're getting taxed on three levels. This was life in Jesus' situation. There was the emperor Caesar, he got his taxes. There was the king Herod, who he appointed, he got his taxes. Then there were the high priests that were the puppets of king Herod. They got their tithes. And then there were these random royal officials who were just friends that worked the system and lived off your taxes extravagantly while you could barely afford to feed your family, all because of the Roman Empire. This was the context of these early miracles. But there's a promise. Many of the people are beginning to see a light. There were rumors a few decades earlier that the promised Messiah had been born. And now there's this prophet who's miraculously turning 180 gallons of water into wine. There are some miracles kind of popping up all over the place. And there seems to be momentum because there are witnesses. There's this buzz surrounding this rabbi named Jesus. These were miracles like Israel's past. Like the days when God stepped in and brought his glory back to his people. Maybe God had finally come down here. Maybe God was with us again. Maybe God's kingdom has come. Maybe it's time for the oppressive Romans to pay a reckoning. All right. Done. And see how this goes. <clears throat> now I can walk away and cough and it doesn't happen to me. So it's really important that we understand the situation because the, the Jews were, were getting excited because their Messiah maybe was here and they have certain expectations that this Messiah is going to come and make things right because this has been so wrong and so oppressive and now it was time for God to get something done. John chapter 4. It's wrong up on the screen, sorry. As Phil would say, I got one thing to do all week and I messed it up. It says, once more Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. 
When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, just keep, keep in mind there that Jesus seems to say here what matters most to him. What he's looking for is faith. Just, just tuck that away. The royal says, sir, the royal official says, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. So the man took him at his word and departed. Now, while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time that his uh, son got better, they said to him, yesterday, one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that uh, this was the exact time that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole family believed. This was the second sign performed after coming from Judea that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So this had to be everything but... Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. This had to be everything but what they would have wanted out of their Messiah. Finally, there's a little bit of justice. It was good having to see this arrogant royal official living off the tax dollars in with the evil empire. Now he has to grovel to the Jewish rabbi. He used people. He played a game to get to where he was in life. It was at the expense of the innocent and hardworking followers of God. This guy was a punk. But Jesus extends grace even to him. Jesus becomes his hero. He becomes his Messiah. He steps in to save the day for his family. Jesus, in some way, um, puts his stamp of approval Jesus puts his stamp of approval on this guy's life. It was absolutely shocking grace. And so the dilemma for the early Jews was to try to figure out how could God in the flesh be for the Romans? How could he be for the oppressors? How could he be their savior as well? So John paints the picture of this miracle and says, this is the second sign of what it means for God to take on flesh. So let's talk about some implications for our life. And one of our mantras to try to build life around is to always include Jesus. Always include Jesus. If that can be our life mantra, we're going to have a, we're going to do pretty well in life. Always include Jesus. And this miracle tells us 
what that means. The first thing I think we can learn is that you don't have to be spiritually impressive. You don't have to be a spiritual giant to include Jesus or to approach Jesus. The fact that John chooses to use the term royal official is significant. He wants to drum up emotion in the ancient reader because that term would have connected dots. Like people would have made certain assumptions. This guy made his livelihood from his friendship with an evil king. If this was a good person, he could have never kept his job and slept at night. Would have also meant that he had no attachment to a faith community because you couldn't have this job and have any kind of respect for Jewish values or heritage. So by invoking the title, royal official, John is playing at our emotions that we're going to connect the dots that this was not a good person. Kind of like if I were to tell you uh, that my job was a cameraman for an adult movie company. You would make certain assumptions about my character, things that I could tolerate in my life. In the same way, by giving this job title, John is counting on us to understand that this was a bad guy. This was the enemy. I talk to enough people to know that one of our great hang-ups can be guilt. We know where we've been. We know the things that we've done. We know who we've done things with. All kinds of things from our past. All kinds of junk that come with us as we approach the idea of connecting with Jesus. And we wonder, how could God really listen to us? How could I really include Jesus? I know who I am. But what we learn from this miracle, Jesus sees him. Jesus listens to him. Jesus responds to him. He brings joy and hope into this guy's life. And this was a part of the evil empire. He's waiting to do the same for you doesn't matter what you've done. Second thing I think we can learn as we try to include Jesus more and more comes from the way this guy approaches Jesus. I think he gets some things right, probably approaches Jesus a little better than I do from time to time. Because I want you to notice there's no appeal to authority or identity. There's no entitlement from this guy. He doesn't seem to try to bully Jesus or demand anything of Jesus. He doesn't use his title or authority to gain an audience. He just goes to Jesus and begs him and grovels for his mercy. This is a guy who could tell Jews what to do. He doesn't try any of that with Jesus. How are you with this? Because I think sometimes peppered through our language... Our ideas of entitlement. A lot of our anger with God can come from the fact that deep down we feel like he owes us something. We talk about things being fair. 
We feel entitled to a blessed life. We get mad when we hear about bad things happening to other people because they deserve better. Sometimes we believe that God owes us a certain level of happiness. Sometimes when we approach Jesus, I think that comes out. God doesn't owe me anything and he doesn't owe you anything. And every single one of us here today already has a level of privilege beyond what we're even aware of, myself included, just to be above ground for another day, to be able to interact with other people, to have memories and make new ones. I was in a place once, thanks to the heroic efforts of a Polaris family, where I got to meet and spend some time with Michelle Knight before, like, things went public. She was one of the three girls that was abducted and held in a house in Cleveland. And she shared her story with me um, before it was out. And I walked out of that room horrified, telling myself, I will never complain about anything for the rest of my life. Now, I haven't kept that promise to myself. But the truth is, we have things pretty good. And God doesn't owe us anything. And not only are we already privileged without the miracle we want, none of us deserve a thing from a holy God. Because we're no better than those emperors or those kings or those royal officials or those high priests. We use people and we take advantage of people. We say mean things. We do mean things. We're jealous and selfish and ungrateful. We're judgmental. And that's when I'm in a good mood. All we can do is try to include Jesus solely on the merits of grace. Undeserved favor from God. And that's what's great about this miracle. This guy doesn't try to earn a hearing with Jesus doesn't present his credentials. He just goes and begs. And Jesus extends mercy to him because the Jesus of the Gospels drips with mercy. And for John, this was a sign that Jesus was from God. I think John is more interested in terms of signs and proof and evidence. It's more about the mercy of Jesus than it is his power. Like, that's the thing that makes the connection with God for John. It's a sign not because of the power, but because of the mercy, because that's who God is. Now, also, as you develop a lifestyle of including Jesus, remember that there are absolutely no boundaries to what he can help you with. Of the two signs that we've seen so far in the gospel... Uh, One involves changing the molecular structure of H2O to save a party. The other involves healing a physical body of someone that Jesus has never met, without an address, without a name, miles away. So never bet against Jesus. He can do anything. Nothing too big, nothing too small. There's no life too good or too bad. There's no easy, there's no hard, there's no near, there's no far. Jesus can bring redemption and a miracle 
no matter what the circumstance. With God, everything is a possibility. And we have access. This Roman politician does the work to get his problem in front of Jesus. And Jesus is more than capable of reaching across even faith boundaries to help this man. So what about, I mean, the elephant in the room here, when I say there's no boundaries with Jesus, why don't we see more? Why is a miracle an exception and not a rule? What about the times when we pray and the person still dies? Because honestly, for me, for Alex David Poindexter, standing before you this morning, I can say, well, good for this Roman official. Jesus stepped in and saved his kid. Ten years ago, when my wife Kelly and I prayed for our daughter, Jesus let her die. Where was he back then? Why didn't he step in for me like he did for this pagan Roman? And how in the world can I stand up here and say that there are no boundaries when we include Jesus? Let me speak to that because we have another month and a half of the miracles of Jesus ahead of us. Remember what Jesus was most interested in when he interacted with this guy? He wanted faith. He said, will people believe with about, uh, apart from a miracle? And there are other places as well where Jesus almost seems like downcast that people are approaching him for miracles because what he really wants is faith in spite of the circumstance. Even when he gives in and does a miracle, or joyfully gives a miracle, he still at times you can see what he really wants is faith. This is the age of faith. This is the age where our faith matters to God. It's what he's looking for. What God wants is for you and I to believe regardless of the circumstance. This is the age of faith. From here on out, everything will be face-to-face with God. If God were to step in and answer every prayer of every follower of Jesus and never allow anything bad, it would require zero faith. It would be obvious. But as it is, what God is really looking for is for our faith. What God wants is for people to love him enough to say, I'm believing anyway. I'm praying anyway. That's what this era of the universe is about. It's about faith. Second thing is, when we get something to Jesus, we can at least know that we did all we could. This Roman walked for who knows how long, this friend of the king to take his need to Jesus so that he could know at the end of the day, I have no control over this, but I did what I could. And when we spend the time taking a need to Jesus, and I'm not talking about one of those half-hearted, please God, talking about taking something to Jesus, spending the hours fasting, pouring over scripture, Talking with other Christians, 
really pouring out the need relationally before Jesus, we can know we've done what we could. And even if we don't get the miracle, we wouldn't have anyway. Chances are good you've still heard from God. Chances are good you still see God's involvement in your situation when you take something to Jesus, even if he doesn't intervene the way you want him to. One more thing that I want to hit real quick. Not only is this good insight for us, this miracle good insight for us in approaching Jesus, We also have to think if we follow Jesus about being Jesus to other people, about being Jesus out there. Because if we say we follow Jesus, it means we have to respond to people the way Jesus did. And I want you to notice, and I need to notice here, that Jesus blessed people that he didn't agree with. He served a guy that didn't worship the way he worshiped. This man didn't stand for the things that Jesus stood for. He didn't have the work ethic. His Facebook posts were nasty. Jesus served him anyway. Jesus showed him mercy and blessed him anyway. And there were no preconditions. There were no strings attached. This would have been a great opportunity for Jesus to use leverage. Like when, when, when somebody's kid's on the line, he could have said, sure, I'll heal your kid, but first you renounce Herod. First, you cut ties with the evil empire. First, you empty your bank account and give these people back their tax money that you cheated out of them, that you've been using. But there was none of that. Jesus served him with no strings attached. And I think there's a lesson there for all of us as we deal with people who we don't like. When we do favors, there should be no strings attached. And we should be more than willing to serve somebody who doesn't vote like us, act like us, believe what we believe. Because that's how Jesus lived. Come on up, Marcus. John says that this is the second sign. This is what it means for the king of the universe to come down among us. This is what happens When grace and glory and truth take on flesh. And we're invited into this grace. We're invited into this story. Not only to include Jesus and invite him into our struggles, but also to take him out there and change the world however we can. To show God's grace and God's glory to everyone around us. So we're going to do one last song. And I just want to invite you to soak it in. This is a song about God taking on flesh and showing us what grace looks like. And just I said in the first service, just fill one of those kiddie pools with God's grace and sit in it and soak while you listen to this song.